This is Mark Gerson, and I'm the rabbi's husband. Thank you for tuning in. I'm Mark Gerson, and I'm the rabbi's husband. And here, as ever, to unearth the inspiring, instructive, and highly practical wisdom of a Torah passage with a fellow seeker of biblical truth. And I am delighted today to be joined by Jonathan Tobin, who is the editor-in-chief of the Jewish News Syndicate, which syndicates Jewish articles and essays to Jewish newspapers all around the country. Now, what is especially remarkable is not only how much content this generates every day, but the fact that the best content each day is almost always an article, an essay, or a column from Jonathan. Most people would be consumed with the full-time job of just running the Jewish News Syndicate, but Jonathan does that and is one of the most consistently interesting, instructive, and enlightening columnists in America today, and he does this every day. So we're going to get to Jonathan's chosen passage, of course, which is from 1 Samuel, but we also have to get into how he's able to be such an interesting writer and author writing every single day. So Jonathan, welcome to The Rabbi's Husband. Well, thanks for having me on, Mark. It's an honor. Uh, it's, a, it's a great podcast, and I'm, uh, I'm very pleased to, to join you today. Well, thank you. So before we get into your passage, I, I am fascinated by how you are able to generate such consistently good columns every day. And I mean consistently good, because very often I'll be reading something, I'll be saying, that's really interesting. Then I'll look up at the, at the author, and it's you. But you do it every day. If you did it once a week, it would be extremely impressive. But you do it every day. How do you do this every day? What's your discipline as a writer? Whenever I'm asked this, my first glib answer is always, well, that's what they're paying me to do, so I guess I better keep doing it. But, you know, I, I think the main thing is I follow the news. I have an ongoing list of things that, are, that interest me, things that I think are worth commenting on, and the list never ends. I mean, I don't get to all the ideas that I have. You know, I, I write for other col- publications, too. I write, write columns in New York Post, The Federalist, uh, sometimes for Haaretz as well. So. Um, it's a big world out there. There are a lot of things to say. There are a lot of things to comment on. You know, in terms of my discipline as a writer. Is there a certain time of day? Because you're doing more than a column a day and they're all really good, which is astonishing. So I know Graham Greene used to write 800 words before 8 a.m. and then just stop at word 800 at 8 a.m. Do you have something like that? Uh, I'm not really a morning person, you know, uh, generally, but I'm a deadline writer. I'm a journalist. I'm a working journalist. But, you know, that's how I define myself. So I write when I have to. If it's up to me, I'm kind of a late afternoon, early evening writer. Um, It takes me a while for ideas to percolate. I'm always reading. I'm always trying to think about things. And um, on a day when I have uh, more control over my schedule, I'm writing usually in the the late afternoon. Very interesting and, and just blows me away. So let's get into your chosen passage, which is from 1 Samuel 8.10. So tell us what happens in this passage. And why is it important to you? I think it is, you know, it's a fascinating passage, and I think it's also very timely. This is the point, um, this is at the beginning of the book of Samuel, where we've come to the, we're coming to the end of the era of Jewish history of the judges, where the, uh, the Jewish tribes in the land of Israel are sort of a loose confederation, even without articles of confederation, they're just a bunch of tribes. Every once in a while, when they are in crisis, uh, when some foreign enemy is attacking them or threatening them, 
someone rises up, they have judges, you know, whether it's you know, somebody like uh, Samson or Tamora, and that seems to work for a while, although not work that well, because they're always, they're always in trouble. And it gets to the point where the Philistines are becoming a real regional power and uh, victimizing the Jews who live in the foothills of Judea and Samaria. And the people come to the judge Samuel, who is the religious leader, the, you know, the prophet of the Jewish people. And they say, give us a king. We want a leader. We want to be like other nations. Give us a king to rule over us, to lead us. And the predicate of them saying that is that the Philistines have a king and because their organization are more powerful and the Jews are saying we can't compete with them unless we have a similar kind of structure. That's exactly right. Like other nations, um, the, the passage just, you know, actually really refers, you don't even just say, give us someone to, you know, uh, kick the Philistines' butts. They say, we want to be like other nations. Other nations have a, a structure. They have a, a way of governing that seems to give them military power. We need a leader. We need someone who can galvanize us, someone we can look to. And Samuel who um, on the one hand understands he can't go on, you know, in his sort of ad hoc judge, prophet, he's getting old. His sons, who are sort of his, you know, appellate court judges, he's the Supreme Court judge. His sons are like his mentor's sons, Eli, who was the judge, the the chief priest before him. um, They're very corrupt. They're not trusted. They're bad leaders. He knows that they're not going to take up after him. And so on the one hand, he understands that what the people need, you know, he, he gets it. He understands the situation, but he says, you're not going to like it. You know, you are going to regret this. If we set a king over you, he will tax you. He will draft you. He will oppress you. And in this passage, it's a wonderful passage. It's sort of, sort of very, uh, you know, anti-government. It's very libertarian. Samuel, in this sense, is the first libertarian. And importantly, Samuel doesn't say, you know what? Good idea. I'll be the king. It's exactly right. He doesn't want it. And he says, you're not going to like it. And it's a wonderful passage. And then he sets out all the ills of executive power and unchecked executive power. It's like you're not electing someone. You're creating a monarchy because you want to be like other people. And this, for, for me, I mean, I hope we'll be able to get into it. There, there are sort of two interesting things for me. On the one hand, there is this dichotomy between the military needs of the moment. They need a leader. I mean, there's no question um, if they're not going to be overwhelmed by the Philistines. There are small people, they're scattered, they're not industrial, they're not in, they don't have any cities. You know, they're all farmers, shepherds. They need some structure. They need um, a military force and someone to, you know, sort of be the permanent leader of it if they're going to survive. On the other hand, as Samuel lays out, <laughs> It's not going to be a fun experience. You know, you may get a good king here. And of course, the whole history, as, as we set forth in the rest of uh, Samuel and in Kings and Chronicles, there's this alternating thing of good kings and bad kings. And, you know, the good kings are very good. They're nice. Bad kings, they betray the faith. They betray the people. And, you know, you're stuck with them. You have to overthrow them. You can't vote them out at the next election. But there's also, for me, there's something, and I think, just before our presidential election, this sort of, you know, it's an interesting meditation on the perils of executive power. Well, and, and the people, they say to Samuel, effectively, we hear you, we still want the king. Yeah, it's like, we'll take our chance. What we are dealing with now is just too bad 
we'll worry about the taxes and the draft and, you know, the possibility that he's going to be a jerk later on. And I think that that's a really, there's a lot to chew on there. But let me just raise another point that goes to something I think very fundamental about Jewish identity and Jewish history, and which resonates for us in the last century or so as well. In that Samuel's problem with this give us a king thing is not just you're not going to like it. It's, you know, you, you think you're getting something you're, it's going to be good for you. It's, it's actually going to be bad for you. in It's more fundamental. He says, God is your king. You aren't like other people. You want to be like other people. You're not like other people. If you were like other people, we wouldn't be here. We'd still be slaves in Egypt. You are a covenantal people. And yet you strive, you know, you, you long to be something else. How familiar does that sound to us in the history of Zionism? After 2,000 years of exile, Theodore Herzl, the founder of modern Zionism, he hit on something that was fundamentally true. The Jewish people could not survive as they were in Europe. Living as he was in the, the freest you know, city, in the freest city and the freest country in the world at that time, as he conceived it, France and Paris, he saw Alfred Dreyfus being degraded and the mob yelling death to the Jews. He realized he had a, in a moment of revelation, was very assimilated to, that something's got to get. We need something else. And he conceives of what we need is a Jewish state. And the Jewish state will enable us to be normal. It will normalize us. We won't be the butt of everyone's joke and the butt of everyone's oppression. And, you know, we'll, we'll be done with all this crazy stuff. 123 years later, after the first Zionist Congress, you know, we know he is, was both a prophet, an absolutely accurate strategist, uh, you know, in terms of the future of the Jewish people. And he was also fundamentally wrong about this normalcy stuff. The Jews were never going to be, even today in our non-miraculous, non-biblical times, we understand that we are a, you know, an Amsagulai, a nation that stands apart that will never be treated by others as normal and will never behave normally. So for me, this give us a king, we want to be like other people. We have been struggling for more than 3,000 years with this conundrum about how we need, we need normalcy. We need to be able to defend ourselves. In our own day, we need Zionism. We need a state of Israel. But we're never really going to be normal. And we're always going to struggle with this. But does this really um, help educate us into the logic of nonconformism? Because so many people like to say they're a nonconformist. And then when they get a little more mature, hopefully they'll say, well, in order to be a productive nonconformist, in order to be productively special, you need to have some things that are similar. So the message of this passage might be, in order to be that kingdom of priests and a holy nation, in order to be a holy nation under God, you need some aspects of what everyone else has, and that's a king. So you actually can't achieve your ultimate goal to be a special person and a light unto the nations, and a, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, and all the other beautiful visions articulated in the Torah, unless you conform in certain ways, and that's okay. Yeah, I think that's very true. I mean, in our own day, we're done with kings, but we need sovereignty. You know, and the Jewish people need a state of Israel. It needs borders. It needs an army. It needs a government, God help us. And um, we can rail at that government. It's you know, I like to say, uh, you know, I'm often asked in the context of uh, people attacking Israel, well, is criticism of, of Israel anti-Semitism? And the answer is obviously not. Millions of Jews get up every day in Israel and criticize their government every day. Everyone who votes one way or the other is criticizing something about Israel. Yes, right. But they need a government. They need um, everything. They need all the uh, impedimenta of modern national sovereignty in order to have any chance, whether from a religious point of view, for Judaism to thrive, 
for, you know, as well as for the Jewish people to survive at all, which is, takes us back to where we were, you know, um, sitting around with Samuel in tents, not in cities. What do we do? How do we survive? Give us a king. And uh, we've been struggling with that conundrum for all these 3,000 years, sometimes with more success than others. And, you know, the king that Samuel winds up giving them is Saul, who is a, one of the more fascinating, deeply ambivalent figures. He's sort of manic depressive. You know, it's part of the passage, you know, it speaks specifically, and there are a couple of different stories in these chapters about how he chooses them. They're very complicated. He's looking for his father's livestock or he was stuck in the baggage. But what does stand out, what struck me is he was very tall. He was a big fella. Sort of like descriptions of George Washington, you know, at the Continental Congress. He stood out in every room. Whatever, where he was, people looked up to him. And that was what Saul had. Saul is sort of the quintessential, you know, modern politician. He stands out. He's, he, he looks good. They say he's, he was a handsome fella. And he has some good leadership qualities. He, you know, he is someone with some military skills, or at least the ability to sort of seize a moment. Um, in chapter 11, it talks about how he you know, makes this very dramatic gesture. You know, anybody who doesn't accept the call to come and defend the Jewish people against enemies, they're going to suffer. I'm, I'm going to cut up your cattle. But um, he's also flawed. He doesn't have comments. And he is not, and he is sort of the center of this conundrum of, are we a nation of priests or are we just a nation? Because, you know, he, he wants to do good. He wants Samuel to like him. He wants to maintain sort of, as the Chinese would say, the mandate of heaven. But he, you know, he, he's a very grounded, you know, say in some ways he's almost sympathetic. And this goes beyond the, the chapters that we were sort of talking about when he loses Samuel's sponsorship and then Samuel goes looking for a new king, you know, and then we get towards David. Because, you know, sometimes Samuel is asking him to do stuff that doesn't seem reasonable. The whole business later on with the Amalekites, you know, don't just kill them, kill their cattle. And that seems very extreme. Saul is just an ordinary guy. He's a regular politician. He's like, why should we do that? You know, let's make money off it. Let's take them hostages. Let's keep their cattle. And Saul says, no, 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 you're not a normal king. This is not a normal nation. But he thought he was. But it is such an interesting dynamic. I mean, I know at the beginning of every, um, when, when John Wooden was coaching UCLA at the beginning of every season, you know, and he had the best, the most creative players ever. He had Lou Alcindor, he had Gail Goodrich, he had Bill Walton. I mean, great teams. And at the, so the best players of his era, he always had. And yet he would always instruct in the beginning of the season, we're going to start by me teaching you how to tie your sneakers. In other words, in order to be great, you have to do some things the same as everybody else. And that might be the message. If you want to be a great nation, you need a king. Are there problems with kings? Yes, you need one. And that's why God never criticizes the Jews for getting a king. Now, in Deuteronomy, you see the same ambivalence. When Moses predicts in Deuteronomy, you're going to want a king. Here are all the problems. You can't have too many horses. You can't have too many wives. Be sure they don't do too many things. So it's ambiguous, but it's necessary. So in order to be great, I think one of the things we learn is there's a whole variety of things that we have to do that are fundamental, that aren't great, that aren't bad, that are just fundamental. And having a king seems to be one of them. You know, and that, that is the basic trade-off. The basic thing, you know, we, we, in the United States, we often speak of, you know, this is to provide, you know, our constitution is to provide, you know, for the common defense. The Jewish people of that time, the, these scattered tribes, they had no mechanism. You know, they had no defense. They had no, no way to do that. 
it was all voluntary. You know, who comes, who turns out when they sound the shofar, you know, the Philistines are coming, come fight. They needed someone. They needed some kind of way to protect themselves, to give themselves a government. But then they dive into all the problems that are part of that. And complicating those problems is their special nature. They are a covenantal people. They are required to listen to the dictates of God and to behave differently from other nations, even as they want to be just like everybody else so that the bullies on the block will leave them alone and let them, you know, tend their sheep and, you know, uh, whatever crops they can grow on those barren hills. But they never can quite do that balance. And sort of in the generations that follow well, under David and Solomon, they, you know, they get a government and then some, they develop into sort of a regional power, but that creates all sorts of problems of corruption. But the problems of corruption, you know, the, the book of Samuel starts telling the story of Eli and his sons and Samuel and his sons. It's like, we're dealing with human beings here, whether, they call, whether they're judges or whether they're kings. You know, later on, the psalmist tells us, put not your faith in princes. That's the other part of this. And you're right. God doesn't judge them for wanting to survive. He doesn't judge them, you know, for saying, give us a king. There are certain things you have to do that are the same things everyone else does. It's certain structures. It's like Israel right now, I believe, is becoming a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. It's becoming a light unto the nations. It wouldn't be able to do that without the IDF. It would be destroyed tomorrow. Does every other country have an army? Yep. It doesn't mean Israel should be special and not have an army. It means Israel should have an army and thus enable itself to be special. You know, that's one of the things that Jews have struggled with in this last century and, you know, as in the history of Zionism, in the history of the conflict with the Palestinians, as well as throughout their whole history. Um, how do we become this nation of priests? How do we you know, balance power with our spiritual, you know, our, you know, sort of the parochialism and the universalism. You know, Cynthia Ozick, in her immortal phrase, said that uh, you know, universalism is the parochialism of the Jews. We're never quite satisfied. We're not ready to be like every other people. And I think she also said that she made the analogy to a shofar. She said, you blow into the narrow end so the sound comes out the wide end. So without the parochialism, there is no place for the universalism. Everything gets blown away. Uh, the Jews who wanted a binational state in the 1920s because they didn't want a, a war against the Arabs, you know, that was rooted in a very, you know, humanistic view of saying, why, why do we have to have a Jewish state and fight with these people? Let's just all, let's all just get along. But that wasn't going to be possible that the survival of the Yeshua depended on there being sovereignty. I mean, that, that's the whole point. Herzl was right. He needed a state, but it wasn't going to be normal. We're not normal. We have this God that keeps asking us to be different, to be special, something that we struggle with, we resist, and yet we're always drawn back to it one way or the other. That's right. Now, just uh, switching to another subject uh, for a moment. A few days ago, I was reading this article, and I said, this is such an interesting insight that was so true. And then I looked up at the author, and it was you. And it was your article where you said, people talk about the Jewish vote, but mathematically, there is no such thing. In fact, there are two entirely distinct Jewish votes, distinct in that they're both different and apart. So let's talk about that. What are the two different Jewish votes? We don't get political on the rabbi's husband, but the election is in two weeks, and this isn't particularly political. It's more soci sociological observation about the two Jewish votes. The fact is, and this is sort of, there are two discussions here. One is the dichotomy between American Jews and Israeli Jews, and also between non-Orthodox Jewry in the United States and Orthodox Jews. 
the difference between Israelis and Americans um, on one foot, the United States was created as a country that was to be the last best hope on earth. It is by nature non-sectarian. Even at its most sectarian, it is non-sectarian. It is one which breaks down divisions. We are a melting pot. We are specifically no established religion, even though there was an overwhelming Protestant majority when the Republic was formed. It is a country where you know you can be whatever you want to be, but it's not just about one thing, one group, one people, which is why other immigrants were able to come here and become part of it and become, as we say, you know, as we say about Jews, you know, they vote like Puerto Ricans but live like Episcopalians. But Israelis, you know, Israel isn't the last best to hope on earth. It is the hope of the Jewish people, one specific group. So within American Jews, that universalism, that dichotomy, universalism, parochialism, for most American Jews, the 80 to 90 percent who are either identify with non-Orthodox denominations you know, are Jews of no religion as the Pew Research Institute defined them in their famous survey of 2013. They define Judaism more or less as social justice, sort of contemporary modern American political liberalism, whereas Israelis view things very differently. So in this election, Israelis like Trump, like President Trump, because he likes them, because he's been the most supportive. But, but I'm talking about the, the American Jewish voter, which where you talked about the percent of non-Orthodox Jews who identify as Democrats, probably over 75 percent. And the percent of Orthodox Jews who identify as Republicans was something like 80 percent. And Haredi was like 95 percent. That's the interesting thing is that for Jews who are non-Orthodox overwhelmingly, it's not 100 percent on either side. The social justice agenda or the liberal agenda of the Democrats is for them, what is, you know, that is Judaism. I mean, the old joke, I I quote it now and then, you know, that for Reform Jews and some conservative Jews, that Judaism is the Democratic Party platform with holidays thrown in. Orthodox Jews see it very differently. They have a lot more in common with conservative Christians, evangelicals, than they do with liberal Jews. And so they identify with the Republican approach. And it's like two separate tribes. They have different priorities in terms of Israel. That's the most outstanding example. Orthodox Jews and sort of the small group of non-Orthodox Jews who are politically conservative. Israel is a litmus test issue for them because it's very specifically, it's very specific Jewish interest. Whereas for non-Orthodox Jews, even many, you know, many of whom care about Israel, I mean, it's not, not that they don't care about Israel. It's just not a priority. It's certainly not a litmus test issue. So that's that's a big breakdown. And that's you know, one of the things that President Trump never seems to get about the Jews, and he's always railing at it. So, so I'm so good to Israel, and he is. I mean, he's objectively been the most pro-Israel president we've ever had. But the overwhelming majority of Jews will never vote for him, as they would never vote for any Republican. You know, they weren't. They didn't vote for Mitt Romney, who was you know sort of a much nicer, easier to take kind of uh, Republican, or John McCain, who was lionized. But the Orthodox, it's the opposite. When I was reading your article, it was like there's probably no two groups in America that vote differently than Reform Jews and Orthodox Jews. That's exactly right. They are as different as evangelical Christians and Upper West Side liberals. Entirely different. They're two different tribes. They're different tribes, and they vote as differently as two different tribes conceivably and mathematically could. Right. And they have a different, different priorities, different mindset, different worldview about what's important. And in terms of all sorts, I mean, 
all sorts of issues like religious freedom. I mean, American liberals think, you know, we need freedom from religion. Orthodox Jews, like evangelicals and conservative Catholics, think we need freedom for religion. So it's, again, totally separate. They vote completely differently. And it's sort of never the twain shall meet. You know, the dichotomy is actually growing. It's not breaking down. It's and much like the rest of America, which is becoming more partisan. We're a bifurcated society now between Republicans, Democrats, conservatives, and liberals. We don't watch, read, or listen to the same media. We care about different issues. So it's all different. And these two branches of the Jewish people are just the same, with our cousins in Israel looking on with just as poor as divided in their own way, but looking on with sort of incomprehension. Right. Well, Jonathan, thank you for such an interesting conversation about Samuel and American political sociology. And the concluding question always goes from one text, the sacred text of the Bible, to another text, which is Andrea Malroux's 1968 book, Anti-Memoir. And he tells a story. He said, I just ran into a man with whom I served in the war. And he said, this man had saved a lot of Jews and then had become a parish priest. So I said to the priest, in all of your years of hearing confessions, what are two things you've learned about mankind? And the priest said, one, everyone is much less happy than he seems. And two, there is no such thing as a grown-up person. So Jonathan, in all your years of Jewish political and sociological engagement, and as such a prolific man of letters, what are two things that you've learned about humankind? Oh, gosh. Um, just two. Um, I think certainly as, as, as a journalist, somebody who, who is an observer, you know, who writes and thinks about what people are doing. I'm, I'm rooted not in the sort of, you know, the, the fantasy magical world of ideals, but of what people do. People believe what they want to believe. <laughs> that's, that's one thing I understand. They will stick on to an idea because it pleases them, because it sort of um, validates their uh, pre-existing uh, opinions and biases. I totally agree. You know, you know Leon Fester did, did that famous 1954, 5455 study of how end-of-the-world cults reacted when the world didn't end. And what people in these cults inevitably did was they doubled down. You know, they said, we just got one small detail wrong. They, the world's going to end. They found it impossible to divorce themselves from their idea, even when it was invalidated completely in real time. Yeah, and I think that's played out in our politics all the time. Liberals and conservatives, you know, pro-Trump, never Trump, they view every story from these completely different perspectives that always wind up telling them that they were right all along. Most people believe they were right all along. You know, the other basic truth, I would say, and it's sort of a day-to-day thing, uh, that which people are interested in doing, no matter how hard it is, they find a way to do. And that which they are not interested in doing, they find ways not to do, no matter how easy it is. It applies to all sorts of things. If there's a will, there's a way. Or as Herzl said, right? If you will it, it is no dream. That is, that is very true. Well, Jonathan, thank you for such a fascinating discussion uh, on so many different subjects. Well, thank you very much. I enjoyed it. If you're enjoying this episode, I hope that you'll sign up for the Rabbi's Husband newsletter which includes book giveaways from our podcast guests, my weekly column on Christian Broadcasting Network, inspiring updates from United Hatzalah and African Mission Healthcare, and a behind-the-scenes look at my upcoming book published by St. Martin's Essentials, The Telling, How Judaism's Essential Book Reveals the Meaning of Life. You can sign up at therabbishusband.com or feel free to email daniel at therabbishusband.com.